Good evening everyone and welcome to Scottonomics. Um, we've got a special show tonight. Um, I'm just going to bring on my co-host Karen Van Sweden while I clean up my screen because it's a little bit dirty and um, hope you're looking forward to our show this evening. Hello Karen, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. It's been a busy day. I had an interview with George Mon by all today so that was, uh, that was quite exciting. Um, but today we have a fantastic guest and I'd like to introduce um, Professor Richard Murphy, who is a chartered accountant, a political economist and a campaigner for tax justice. Hello. Hi, Richard. Welcome to Scotonomics. <laughs> so well, well, we want to before, know... Before, before, how... we ask, before we ask oh, a first question, just to let me know that any question that you ask tonight, um, drop it into the comments on the YouTube channel and we'll make sure that uh, Richard answers it. So please do that and we'll be able to head into the session with all of your questions as well. So my first question for you, Richard, is how did the Green New Deal group form in 2008, I think? Well, it seems like a long time ago now, you know, that's 13 years we've been talking the Green New Deal and rather longer between those who actually formed the group. There were officially eight of us, although it's always been a little bit more flexible than that number seems to imply. The person whose idea it really was, was Colin Hines. Um, Colin mm -hmm. Hines is an environmentalist. He worked for Friends of the Earth before he worked for Greenpeace and then began to work for himself. Um, he headed the first economics unit at uh, Greenpeace, although Colin would, I think, readily admit he's more of an environmentalist than he is an economist. He and I began to work together in oh, 2002 when we began to talk about the need for local authority bonds to change finance, to fund local infrastructure, a lot of which was, we felt, green. And God, we've been talking about that ever since as well. That's you know, 19 years we've now been on that thing. And our first ever report was published by the New Economics Foundation, where Andrew Sims was then in charge, and he became another member of the group. Colin worked a lot for Caroline Lucas, who, of course, we now know of as a Green MP, but she was then actually a Green MEP. And then there was Anne Pettifor, who we both knew as an economist. Jeremy Leggett, who was um, at one time also a Greenpeace fuel specialist. Um, Larry Elliott from The Guardian um, was an old friend of Collins, who I've now got to know well over the years. And we sort of came together because we saw a real problem really beginning in early 2007. We began to have the discussions. We saw there was going to be a financial crisis. Anne had written about this. She'd written about debt. She had been a campaigner for the Jubilee Debt Campaign. She'd been its director. I was quite sure we were going to have a financial crisis. Larry was quite sure we were going to have a financial crisis. I was heavily involved, for example, in looking at the failure of Northern Rock in 2007 and actually exposed a lot of the reasons why that bank did fail then, because it had a shadow bank called Granite, which they, I think, thought was incredibly funny that the Northern Rock was Granite. And the Shadow Bank was actually where a lot of the problems inside Northern Rock were. We could see that banking was massively overgeared. The US had this enormous credit crunch coming its way. It was you know, lending mortgages, which were clearly not going to be repaid, just as Northern Rock was obviously in trouble. Um, but we saw two other things as well, really. One was obviously a climate crisis. I'd worked around um, climate for very, very many years. In fact, this, I think... 
I don't know whether we can see it. Yeah, I hope we can. The Costs of Economic Growth. It's a book that I bought when I think I was 17, which takes us back a bit. It was actually written in 1967 by this chap E.J. Mission, um, who was at the London School of Economics. He never advanced very far in his career because he said there was a cost to economic growth. We were living on a finite planet. And in fact, I was quite convinced of that by the time I was a teenager, which was very rare at the time in question. And I had already moved on by the time I went to university to argue green economics. You know, I'd read this, Small is Beautiful by E.F. Schumacher. Um, again, mid-1970s, and I went to university in 76. Um, it has to be said that I, I mean, I argued that all the way through my undergraduate um, economics course, which was heavily Keynesian because monetarism wasn't even in vogue by then. Um, but I rejected a lot of neoclassical economics, as did other members of this group, you know, the Green New Deal group became. But we were all sort of of this persuasion that the economy was fundamentally wrong, that we had got a, an oil crisis coming, we thought at the time. It transpires, I think we got that bit wrong, if I'm honest. Uh, uh, oil is more plentiful than we expected. Um, but we thought there was going to be an oil price crisis. Uh, we predicted a financial crisis. And what we said was, which, whatever happened, there was going to be a profound need to change the economy. And the direction that we needed to move in was basically a Keynesian reflation of the economy by investing heavily in an alternative structure of the way we organized our means of production, the way we lived around sustainability. That was the key issue. Sustainability was there right from the beginning. And this was going to require a significant government involvement to inject the funds to create the employment because we were quite sure there was going to be unemployment. And the reason why there was going to be unemployment was there was going to be a financial crash. And we decided to get a report together um, it's a little disjointed in places, if I'm honest. The first 2008 report, it shows the differences of opinion, some of which have become more apparent since. Um, Anne Pettifor has never entirely integrated into the group as comfortably as the rest of us have done. She's always tended stronger emphasis on certain form of monetary economics, in a sense, claiming they're Keynesian, which I've never quite understood, than the rest of us. Um, she doesn't agree with us on what money is and modern monetary theory, uh, whereas most of the rest of us are pretty committed to the idea of, well, we didn't even know it was modern monetary theory at the time, but we do now. Um, there was a very strong emphasis as well in that first report on tax reform. We were much more into the idea that we had to fund um, change then than we were, as later reports clearly indicate, that we were into quantitative easing as a mechanism of funding, which we'd reached by 2010, but we hadn't in 2008. Um, Colin Hines and I really drove the green QE agenda from uh, 2010. So we came together, we wrote the report, um, and we put it out in July 2008. Um, and of course, uh, the world fell over in September 2008. Um, it was a pretty stressful, scary time. But we'd actually said, we need a recovery before we even had the crash, which was kind of to our advantage. We looked as though we were pretty clairvoyant, even though, well, perhaps we were a little bit. Great. And, and that, that's 2008. Um, and you've kind of spoke up there to like 2010 when you were starting to look at kind of quantitative easing. Now we're at 2021. How different does the Green New Deal look from when you originally envisaged it 13 years ago now? Well, one of the things we now know is that we are we we refine the ideas and the thinking in between. We produce a report every year or so um, since then, 
and probably rather more if we include those that Colin and I have written as finance for the future, because sometimes we produce reports under that banner as well, um, which tend to be just by Colin and me. Um, the change has been to refine really what we're looking at and to consider how we're going to do the funding. So we've become very much more specific about the climate demands. Um, we recognise that there is still a need to create meaningful, long-term, worthwhile employment. Um, many of us share the view inside the group that many of the jobs we've got now are, well, pretty rubbish um, in the economy. Yeah, they're not very meaningful for people. Um, we need to actually deliver high-quality training, long-term prospects, um, security, um, trade union representation, decent living wages. So we've become, in a sense, broader in our political thinking around those issues. And we link those to the fact that it's very obvious that we need, and we always saw this, but we've become more specific, some really quite simple things to deliver a Green New Deal before we go on to some of the more esoteric things. And so we've often had a concentration on the local, which I think came out of the New Economics Foundation orientation of some of the original work. I tend to be very macro focused, but some of this is quite micro. And some of the local stuff is really important. I mean, we do actually seriously need to cut the consumption of energy, um, which is something which is almost not being said at COP, which I hope we talk about um, as this you know, program continues. Um, cutting energy consumption is critical. We need to look at how we um, insulate homes as a consequence. We need to look at alternative forms of energy production. So we spent a lot of time, in the early days, it was really quite novel to talk about solar panels and tide and wind were you know, pretty esoteric. Well, now they're not, but they, become, they still are not getting the attention they deserve. I mean, wind now can generate up to a quarter of the UK's energy, which is fantastic, but its potential in some areas is underdeveloped. Tide is massively behind the scale still. So we're still talking about things which are really important about alternative energy production, but we never ignore the fact that we should actually also be talking about insulation, which is you know, windows. Um, triple glazing is really important as a way of saving energy um, and long-term investment in property. We are still got vast numbers of houses in the UK without loft insulation, which is almost unforgivable. Doors that don't fit. Um, and then talking about your basic turning buildings into power stations. Um, there is no reason why we shouldn't have more solar panels, but it's still become incredibly difficult to do that and to find the right funding and to make sure that people can actually get a return on the investment and, or can be supported to do that and how we achieve all that. So we've spent ages investing in those different ideas. I think we're still pretty unusual in focusing upon that level. Mm. Only then do we move on to things more like transport, infrastructure, and through the funding mechanisms that we were developing, particularly Green QE, and I think we were pretty much the first to ever talk about green quantitative easing, as a variation on the mechanism for funding government, which was really introduced in 2009. I mean, in 2009, I was quite close to the Treasury, um, there was a Labour government, you know, you remember what those were? Um, they, we used to have them. Um, and they were keener on me than some of the governments that we've had since then were. Um, and I went to the Treasury quite a bit and I knew quite a lot about what was happening on QE. And I realised that QE was going to actually fuel inequality. That was the inevitable consequence of QE. 
that if you injected vast amounts of money into the economy and didn't regulate where it was going, which is how QE works, you give it to banks and let them splash it on whatever they want, they speculate with it. It ends up in the hands of the wealthy, it doesn't go into the productive economy. We were arguing right from 2010, well, this should be directed through a national investment bank towards actually delivering these programs of change to, to deliver what we call a carbon army. And we still call it a carbon army. And the carbon army is literally designed to actually create jobs in every constituency. If you're going to insulate a house or fit new windows or fit solar panels, it has to be done in the street where the property is. It can't be done anywhere else. So this is really key to the idea of full employment as part of the overall solution as well. Uh, and, so, and Richard, and, and Richard, so um, the just taking a just taking a slightly step uh, a slight step back in terms of the because that's a, a huge amount of of, of um, really interesting detail, but in terms of what the Green New Deal is as a as a, a kind of macro level, would you be able to sum that up? You know, I hate to use that you know elevator pitchy kind of Twitter <laughs> thing, but but you know to get this across to people, what is the the, the Green New Deal? The Green New Deal is the economic and social transformation of our society, so that we can live sustainably, tackle climate change, and still enjoy a very high standard of living for everyone, which I believe is possible. So we're tying together the climate, employment, finance, government and private sectors in a package that delivers us a sustainable future. Fantastic. Well, it certainly sounds like a, 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 um, an idea that whose time has come, and especially with all the focus on, on COP as well. Oh, well, absolutely. I hope so. It's, but it's not the only idea in town, but it's a big one. Uh, Kieran, yeah. you any I mean, questions for Richard? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, obviously, Caroline Lucas is going to champion this as an idea. Um, and, you know, who, who else is, is really on board with this in the British Parliament in, in Westminster? Well, Clive Lewis has been the notable supporter from Labour uh, and has been you know, outspoken. He's now officially a member of the group. Um, so he joins in group uh, calls and debates and so on. And so we do quite a lot with Clive. And he's been quite brave in al aligning himself very often with Caroline on calls for a progressive alliance and so on. It's not going to increase his prospects of becoming or going back to the Labour front bench. I don't think he's too worried because actually it works incredibly well in his constituency of Norwich South, where his main opponents are, in fact, the Greens. And there's quite a lot of friendly rivalry between Greens and Labour in Norwich South, the constituency I happen to know. So he's very happy to be a, a supporter. Um, there are some sympathetic, I think, members of the SNP. Um, but are there any other really outspoken people who talk this um, really heavily? Well, yeah, actually one or two. Ed Miliband does understand and gets it, and we do certainly occasionally get to talk to his office. Um, on the Tory benches, I'm afraid, no. Um, no no surprise there. In, in terms of, um, that's the, the kind of support in the Westminster Parliament. When you look across the globe, are there any um, countries who are making progress towards a, a Green New Deal or kind of organisations who are really supportive of the, the general principles of a Green New Deal? Well, I've got to say that the Democrat Party in the US gave us the biggest boost we've had. Um, if I'm honest, the Green New Deal virtually died a death by 2011 in the public eye because austerity took over. Um, George Osborne, had, we, we were talked about a lot in 2008, 9, 10. I mean, I think we had you know, 
a moment in the sun. Everybody was a Keynesian again for a brief period, and this was one of the things that they were going to do. Even Labour talks stuff like this then, quite a lot. Um, the Tories came back to power talking about having a Green Deal. It was a real damn squib. It was just literally nicking the name, um, and it was pointless almost. Um, and then it really went quiet, and it only really revived in a big way around the globe when the Democrats in the States, the young Democrat grouping, came over to the UK. They talked to actually to Anne Pettiful, credit to Anne for doing this, um, understood what we've been trying to do, picked up the idea, ran with it, and we end up with people like Alessandra Ocasio-Cortez, the quad and so on, in, <laughs> now in Congress talking about a Green New Deal. They presented a bill um, in Congress saying we want a Green New Deal. And they on the left of the Democrats in the States have been driving Biden in that direction. So there's no doubt that in some ways Biden's attempts to do massive infrastructure projects are, well, at least in part green. I mean, let's be honest, there's also a massive amount of roads and stuff in there. But have you seen the state of US roads? I haven't been to the States for a while, but when I went three or four years ago, um, they're pretty dim, grim. So he certainly has some element and there's a strong pressure on the US to deliver. In Europe, there's a Green Deal. Um, they don't quite call it a Green New Deal. Is it what I would call a Green New Deal? Not wholly. Is it undoubtedly about greening the European economy? Is it about investing in green infrastructure at a heavy scale rather than at the micro end from which we began to start the process? Yeah, it is. Um, it is about literally trying to remove carbon from parts of the European um, economy. It is about trying to green finance. It is about trying to change the way in which taxes are charged to try to look at this. So but there are champions. I mean, let's, you know, let's not pretend otherwise. There are. And some countries are more green than others. The Scandinavian countries almost invariably where every single Scandinavian current country now has a left of centre prime minister for the first time since the 1950s, which we all think that you know, Scandinavia being left centre. Actually, this is the first time for decades that they've been in that state. Um, they're certainly pretty green aware. Um, are some countries almost missing the point? I'm afraid, yeah. There are plenty yeah, of... But it's interesting, the European Central Bank has also been a little bit more relaxed on its um, budgetary constraints, and it's saying that, you know, we're looking at inflation rates in the medium term, which might mean that there is some kind of scope for, for more fiscal spending across Europe as well, which would obviously support yes. um, the move to, to um, a Green New Deal. It, it must be frustrating for you to have had such a fantastic idea, it initially got some momentum in the UK to see it completely disappear. Um, you know, Thankfully, it's re-emerged in, in America, where arguably you would have much more, um, much more impact anyway. But is there a frustration that the United Kingdom isn't anywhere near, correct me if I'm wrong, anywhere near pushing this idea of a Green New Deal? Yeah, of course there's a frustration, but that's the life of a campaigner. I mean, first of all, you set up an ideal. You set up what you really want. Um, you have to dare to dream. That's what a campaigner does. And they ask for what is seemingly impossible. And why not? I mean, I've done it on tax justice. I've done it with this. I'm now doing it about corporate accountability as well. And I, you know, another new area of work I'm now pushing more on um, and why I'm a professor of accounting at Sheffield now. Um, this is where you literally look out of the window and imagine how the world could be better. Um, are you therefore setting yourself up to fail to some degree if you imagine the perfect outcome you want? Yeah, of course you are. Um, does that matter? No, because you're trying to communicate a vision of an idea. Um, if some people 
notice it, pick it up, run with it, and it has an impact, you've made a change. Uh, is it as much as we need yet? No, but I'm afraid to say people aren't very good at imagining things that are different from what they know. Um, I guess I'm unusual. That's what I like to do. I like to imagine a world that isn't the one that actually exists. Um, but that isn't what most people do. Um, it can be quite uncomfortable. It can be difficult, um, frustrating. Um, and not everybody wants to take that on as a role. And I've been fortunate to raise funding to let me do this. I mean, let's be honest, I'm an incredibly lucky person. I've been funded throughout this period. Uh, enough to keep a family, see my sons grow up, and be able to literally do that looking out the window and think the ideas. So no, I'm not frustrated by it. I just wish it had happened earlier because then we'd have <laughs> had a much better chance of meeting 1.5 degrees. We knew yeah. this was going to happen. Yeah, um, and, and that's so a really I'm, important point. I, I brought Karen on screen because Karen was. I could see Karen in the back just nodding away. But you know, and we've got a couple of questions which I'll go to next. But Karen, your life as a campaigner, we, 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 were you just completely nodding along with? with uh, Richard's, Richard's view of the uh, the life of a campaigner? Yeah, I, I think, you know, you, you have to be idealistic and you have to you have to uh, ask for, you know, what you think is possible. And I, I, I completely think that this is possible. I mean, we know that government is the monopoly issuer of the currency. The UK government, that is, it is a matter of just um, putting the currency to together with the real resources and, you know, they can make it happen. I, you know, unfortunately, we know we have a very libertarian government at the moment in Westminster. Then they they think that the market will solve everything, and we know that that's not the case. So I don't know what we're going to do about that. But, you know, uh, in the campaign that I'm in, we're taking them to court. <laughs> so so uh, that's, that's, but that's the idea. Uh, Richard, I do want to get to a couple of the questions from from the audience, if that's if that's okay. So, um, sure. Uh, the, the first question we've got is around um, oil subsidies, and and Karen, maybe you want to chip in on this one as well. Um, what are your thoughts on major world leaders still not ditching oil? The oil subsidy rate of eleven million dollars a minute, um, and the pace of change to renewables. So that's the first question, and then the second question we've got is. Um, uh, where are you the first finance minister of independence? No, we'll come back to that one because that's a really good detailed, <laughs> detailed question. We, we were asking, we were asking early before we went live, we were asking Richard if he was considering moving into politics. Maybe someone was listening to our conversation there. But in terms of oil, oil subsidies and the lack of momentum towards uh, ditching that. Karen, do you want to go first and then I'll, I'll bring Richard in? Mm. Yeah, well, it, it is completely ridiculous that you know the the oil industry is subsidized so heavily and it, you know the north sea is the most profitable place for you to dig oil out of out of the uh, ground so um yeah you, you're encouraging fossil fuel extraction and there is this myth um going around just now that you know we have to have this for domestic consumption and people i, I want to reiterate this as frequently as possible 80 percent of our oil is exported so, um, yeah, be aware of that, people. From my point of view, I mean, this is just bad economics before it's even bad environmentalism. We know it's bad for the environment. We know we literally cannot burn the oil that is in the ground. We knew that in 2008. It was one of the themes of that first report. It was not just that yeah, we, when we talked about peak oil, what we were talking about was that we can't take more oil out of the ground. We knew that then. 
that if we did it, we would be causing harm. So we knew in 2008 that we didn't need to discover any more oil because there was more than enough oil to for, forever at that time to meet all demand that we could reasonably meet and still have a livable planet. Nothing's changed in the meantime, except that we've found more oil and we have oil companies intent on burning it and government is giving them subsidies to do it. Now, if we want to survive, and as a parent, um, I have a desire that my children should have a world that they can live on. And my sons are almost 40 years younger than me. So we have a big intergenerational gap in this household. Um, you know, they're going to be around for a long time. I am therefore very concerned about their futures. So we cannot burn that oil. So if we understand that basic parameter, and then you look at the subsidies, and then you look at the continuing investment, you just think this is economic insanity. It blatantly is literally throwing money away. So, um, I heard uh, uh, one of our um, doyens of, of the media, uh, which is Sir Ian Wood, um, talking about this, and you know, he it slipped out, he said, well, what about the balance of trade? So, so this is, the, about you know, this is the idea that we have to keep uh, balance of trade. Well, well, well that really I read today, actually, that um, in 2016, the G7 said that by 2025, they were going to have removed all of the subsidies for oil. So I hadn't come across that before. I read it in a paper today. That was 2016 for 2025. At the moment, I think oil subsidy globally is still 500 to 600 million, sorry, billion dollars. So I'm not sure if that's one of those promises that's made that people forget and, and never action. But there is definitely something there um, that the, the G7 said that we can be working towards in terms, in terms of subsidies. But at the moment, we're still spending more on oil and gas subsidies than we are on climate change. So I think that gives us a, an indication of, of, where we, of, where we're, of where we're going. But you have to remember that what economists do is model the world that they know. Economists are not very clever people, if I'm completely honest about it. Most of them actually don't look out of the window. There isn't a world. I mean, I've got a window just over there. But as far as they're concerned, there is no world outside. All there is is a spreadsheet. And on that spreadsheet, they look at what's happened and they project it forward and they try to work out a financial return. And as far as they're concerned, the fact that there might be no planet is beside the point because until the moment when the planet ceases to be, all they're interested in is can they make more money? And they discount that money back to the present and say, well, we can keep on digging out oil, we can keep on making money from it. Therefore, so long as our model works, we will carry on saying we should subsidize this activity. The reality does not occur to them. Quite literally, it doesn't. They call it an externality. It's outside their control. They don't worry about it, and therefore they ignore it. And as a consequence, we carry on doing subsidies. The truth is, we have to be holistic in our thinking. This is one of the obvious economic changes. We have to be holistic in the way that we look at the world as a whole. And in that world as a whole, we cannot continue to burn oil. And therefore, these subsidies are not just bad in terms of the climate, but they will result in vast amounts of money being wasted when it could be better used by subsidizing, obviously, green energy, green jobs and the transition that we need. It is money being thrown away. If we want to find the easiest pot of money to fund the Green New Deal, just stop subsidizing oil. 
and possibly that um, money that's been invested in oil will never be realised because it's never going to be pulled out of the ground. And we had a wonderful interview with Ben Franta, um, who has kind of lifted the lid on a lot of the delay and denial within the oil industry. I'll make sure that make sure that people have a, a watch of that episode. It's it's fantastic. Okay, Richard, got a question for you. It's a it's a what if question. Um, um, were you the first minister of an independent Scotland uh, with a reserve bank? and a system in place, and given a free hand, what would your first priorities be? And if you give me a short answer on this one, please. Oh, short answer. My first priority would obviously be to look at how do you create a prosperous Scotland? Now, that isn't just obviously about oil or anything else, because oil is pretty small in terms of Scotland. My job would be to put in place the economics for a long-term sustainable Scotland where there was full employment, where there was freedom from fear, because I believe that every politician's fundamental job is to deliver a world which is free from fear. So people have got jobs, they've got security, they've got pensions, they've got healthcare, they've got housing, they've got food, and all of that happens inside an economy where they can be sure that overall, the value of the money in their pocket will be sustained. And actually, I think all those things are possible. That's what I would be trying to do. How would I deliver that? Well, a Green New Deal would be pretty critical to the way I do it, because that is how I would offer the guarantee of long-term jobs, the transition. But also in Scotland's case, and we've just mentioned the balance of trade, Scotland can be a massive energy producer again. The energy it will produce will be renewable, it will be sustainable, it will be tidal. We just aren't investing enough in tidal. There's hardly any real investment in tidal. So I would be changing the tax incentives of Scotland to encourage investment in tidal. I would be in changing the savings mechanisms of Scotland so people would be encouraged to put their money into a national investment bank which would fund the Green New Deal. I would be changing the way in which I would be looking at how people were employed. I'd be trying to increase the living wage. And would I be worried about the balance of trade? No, because there are willing customers just to the south of Scotland, they're called England, people in England, who need Scottish water, which is going to be in short supply, but which Scotland has lots of, and Scottish renewable energy, which England is short of, which Scotland has lots of. And we have willing trading partners in Europe who'd be more than happy to trade with Scotland. I believe that there's a long-term sustainable future, but it does need that transition. Yeah. So that would be my priority. You'd have a busy Freedom first from, hundred days, Richard. Freedom from fear would be my entire message. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the, the, the correct answer is, of course, a tap in everyone's house that dispenses iron brew for free. That's the first thing it's doing. Okay, the, 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 the next question that we've got um, is around, um, I, I suppose, advice to, to, to government. Um, apart from yourself, what other advisors do the Scottish government um, have that promote um, the Green New Deal uh, principles? Well, I'm not an advisor to the Scottish government, unfortunately. Um, I do talk to members of the SNP, but um, I'm certainly not um, an advisor to the inner core of the party which we all know exists they have occasionally said they'll talk to me but they aren't at the moment um so we have a real problem that actually most of the people who really understand the issues as far as i see it in scotland are outside the core advisor group of the smp and that is the current political crisis of scotland as i would put it i don't think we'd have alapa if we had had an smp which was more willing to listen um, I think there are a lot of people who are disenchanted because their activism within the SNP is unfortunately not reflected by or in the policies that the leadership want. So I don't know who these advisors are. Well, I mean, we know there's some around Charlotte Street, obviously, um, and uh, Andrew Wilson and his crew who are putting forward a very neoliberal view of what 
Scotland should be, which is very far from what I would want. Um, there is Scotland. a new advisory panel. I'll, I'll see if I can find a link for that. Um, I know there's kind of 10 or 12 well known oh, economists. There's this economics advisory panel, of yeah. whom one or two people are quite good. I think um, uh, Mariana Matsukuta is on mm. there. She's great. Um, yep, but she's how great. much time she dedicates to it, I don't know. Um, is Danny Blanchflower now on there? Um, he might be. He's now Mark, Mark Blythe. Sorry? Mark Blythe. Mark Blythe. Mark, Mark Blythe's got an opposition. I know Mark. Um, we have a very good, um, one of his best friends is one of my best friends. And Mark and I don't always agree with each other, which creates a, a problem for this uh, mutual friend. Because um, <laughs> Mark's got a very odd view on currency and a mm. pretty odd view on modern monetary theory, which I don't agree with. Um, his book on the, the I can't remember what it was called, something on economics, some weird title. Angrynomics. That's it. Um, it was great until I can even remember the page number. It was 127. I wrote, wrote a review, which he didn't like very much because it was really pretty damning of Stephanie Kelton and modern monetary theory. And then, you know, I might be a fan of Stephanie. Look, that was one of the other books I was going to mention. I'm so much a fan. I'm even on the back cover. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he, he's really dubious about MMT. So Mark and I are quite a long way apart on that. He doesn't believe that Scotland has a future, very strong future, is independent in that sense, or he does believe the euro is critical. And I don't, again, I don't believe the euro is critical to Scotland. So I'm afraid to say I'm not very convinced as a group, good group of um, advisors. I think they've chosen to provide the message that um, the core party wishes to hear. Yeah, well, I, I think by, you know, by bringing you on and giving you this um, platform and also a lot of the other economists that we are speaking to, we, we hope to be in, in some way giving people the ammunition so that they can themselves move towards the um, the, the members, the, the elected members in the party. Because as Kieran always says to me, the SNP is the members, it's not just the elected people. So if, if we get much more knowledge and much more support for things like this, it can make a difference. And, and we've seen some, you know, some, some monumental um, motions passed at conference ostensibly through well, Kieran's work and also from um, 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 Tim Rideout as well. So well, I know Tim. Um, and, and again, you know, I was actually going to mention the committee. That Are you both on that committee? I, I don't know. I mean, the, yes. the, there's the policy committee um, of the SNP, yes. which seems to have some pretty damn good people on it. Um, and yet that's thinking really well, and yet the party is resisting, well, the, the core of the party is mm. resisting that message. You know, who's advising Kate Forbes? I wish I knew. Yeah. I don't. Okay. Well, I'm well, let's it. let's I'm let's pull it. back. Let's pull back from the um, the the inner workings of this this the Scottish, uh, Scottish National Party. I'm not a member, so I'm not on in that committee. Or nor or am I. I'm not a member of any political party. Anything like that. Um, I, th I think we've got um um. Have we got another question there? Uh, no. So I, I'll I'll just uh, please do keep bringing your uh, dropping your questions in because these these are great. Um, following on for that though, um, Richard. If we had a Scottish government who was completely bought into the ideas of Green New Deal, um, how would we achieve that? Would Scotland be able to do that as, as an independent country? And I'm going to... Uh, yes, yeah, so, so that's the kind of general. If we were bought into, could we do a Green New Deal? Yeah, Scotland could do a Green New Deal. What are the conditions of doing a Green New Deal if Scotland is independent? Look, it has to be genuinely independent. Um, and that means it has to break its ties with the rest of the UK, England in particular. And the critical tie which has to be mentioned there is currency. Um, you cannot be an independent currency, uh, country if you do not have your own currency. Fundamentally, the power to tax is one of the identifying features of an independent country. And that has to be matched by the power to create your own currency because the two are literally related to each other. 
You actually create currency in the first instance. That is what happens in the UK now. It has done since 1866 under an Act of Parliament. Then the Exchequer and Audit Act of 1866 meant that ever since then, the Parliament in Westminster basically can spend without ever having to ask the Bank of England, have we got money in the bank? It will always extend the credit that is required. Scotland has to have that power. It hasn't got that power if it doesn't have its own currency. So number one job for an independent Scotland is to create its own currency. If it has, it can then run a deficit. It will have to run a deficit, as Tim Rideout points out. Why? Because that's the only way in which the new Scottish currency can be injected into the economy. Well, that and people obviously buying it in exchange for the sterling they've got, which will create the foreign exchange reserves that Scotland needs, which everybody says it can't generate, and Andrew Wilson entirely misses the point on. People will buy the Scottish currency by selling their sterling for it, and that sterling will be owned by the Scottish Central Bank, who will give Scottish pounds in exchange. So there's no problem with Scotland having its own currency, nor do I think it's going to have a major issue with regard to value, because Scotland is a strong market of five and a half to six million people with a strong history in financial management, a strong history in the rule of law, which, let's be honest, is something which is disappearing pretty rapidly in the rest of the UK, as we've seen today. Um, you know, with measures at Scot in Parliament which are basically leading to a collapse of the rule of law in England, I think there'll be a strong move even of money to Scotland. I actually can see there being a strong financial services centre in Edinburgh again. Now, some people might question whether they want that, but I think it will happen. But with those conditions in place, Scotland can then run its own tax system. Its tax system would be very different from that we have in the UK at present. I think there are some things we'd really want to change. For example, I would want to get rid of, in the end, national insurance, because national insurance is a tax on jobs. Why the heck do we want a tax on jobs when people not working is actually a waste of a non-renewable resource? Time wasted is never available to be used again. So we need people to work. So we shouldn't be doing that. We should be taxing other things. We could have a financial transaction tax to replace that, which would be much more progressive, much more progressive than a VAT, which I'm not a great fan of. We could change the tax base. We would tax Scottish wealth. There's a lot of wealth in Scotland, remember, which is not resident in Scotland. So land, for example, is heavily owned outside Scotland, but clearly in Scotland it can therefore be used as a much better tax base than it is at present. We would be trying to actually equalise taxes on income and wealth in Scotland, we'd have a strong corporate tax system, making sure that cheats don't prosper in the way that they still do in the rest of the UK, with government sort of connivance, I have to say. And then we would actually be looking at how we can use that to invest in the Scottish economy. But these things are intimately related. The tax is a way of recovering the strong investment that would be made by the Scottish government in this green transition to generate that freedom from fear, which is what I talk about. Yeah. Richard, you've done really well. You've got 40 minutes without mentioning tax. Um, so that's really good. That's really good. But I've got to cut you off because I know you'll speak about tax for the next 20 minutes that we've got. I um, won't. And we've got some we've got some questions. Again, this one, I think I can I can ask both of you. Um I just wanted to kind of clarify, because someone said, why would the Green New Deal be difficult for Scotland? And and I just want to say that without this ability to use fiscal spending, if Scotland was independent and wanted to be uh, and wanted to, to introduce the Green New Deal, it would have three options. The first would be to uh, tax, which is not a really good idea when you've just set up a new country. The second thing would be to reduce spending on other things, which is not great when you've just set up a new country. And obviously the, 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 that would affect the most disadvantaged in society. And yep. then the third 
is to borrow in foreign exchange. And that's not what you want to do when you set up a new currency, uh, sorry, when you set up a new country. So the fourth option is this fiscal deficit spending uh, with a new currency. And that would allow us to do um, huge infrastructure, green infrastructure spending like the Green New Deal. So it's a fundamental element of um, progressing towards a Green New Deal is, is monetary sovereignty. Richard, are you, are you in agreement to that? Is that a fair summary? I am. I'm, I'm totally in agreement with that. And in fact, I mean, there was a very interesting thing put up by uh, Malcolm Reeval on uh, Modern Money Scotland this week, uh, which where he found a quote from um, William Beveridge written in 1944 in the middle of the Second World War about the need for full employment. And full employment is one of the things I've always had at the heart of my thinking. I mean, the idea that people should be unemployed to me is offensive if people want a job. I don't say people have to have a job. I say that people want a job, they should be able to have a job and it should be well paid. And there's this wonderful phrase, I mean, which was recognized then that the state always has the capacity to create the money to create full employment. Mm -hmm. There is never a constraint on it to do so. Yeah. It literally makes the money. Well, well fantastic segue into a question here. And, and this was the one I wanted to get to was Richard, what's your view on uh, a UBI? And um, Karen, I'd like your view on that as well, but also if you want to slip into the um, job guarantee scheme as well. And then my final kind of question on that, Richard, where is the Green New Deal with UBI job guarantee? Where does it sit with those two kind of very different options? But Karen, would you want to go first with that? Um, yeah, so we had a resolution passed at conference for a job guarantee. Um, I uh, would absolutely like to see everyone who wants a job to have a job. And the UK government has demonstrated through the pandemic that it can be the employer of last resort. So when we come independent and we run our own central bank and our own currency, we can, our government can be the employer of last resort. I want to go back to something that Richard said about, you know, freedom of fear because you know the, the stress of worrying about money all the time, there has been quite a lot of studies on that and that really debilitates people's ability to think straight. And mm -hmm. when you multiply that up to the amount of people that are stressed about money, that's just a huge waste of human resource and talent um, that we, we have uh, currently because of um, stupid monetary policies, fiscal policies coming from Westminster. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I believe that everyone who wants to work should be able to work. There is no formal Green New Deal line on this, partly because there, aren't, there isn't a total agreement inside the Green New Deal group on the issue. Um, so to some degree, there's been a bit of a fudge. Um, but let's be also be clear right from the beginning we talked about creating full employment that was always the objective and we always were about an employment creating program so therefore we were effectively always effectively talking about a job guarantee we were talking about literally creating jobs in every constituency on the ground for people who needed them who needed the training who needed the support who needed the long-term prospects so our bias right from the beginning has always been in favor of the idea of a job guarantee that if somebody wants a job it should be there where they are and i think that's also particularly important because i do think that that is part of the freedom from fear people shouldn't have to move hundreds of or more miles to get work if they don't want to um what is wrong with the place where you are and i think that's particularly important 
in a country as diverse in its you know, economic and social backgrounds as Scotland, there's such a wide range of communities in a relatively small population over a very large land mass for that size of population. And I think that's key. So job guarantee is very much the orientation we'd have. We've never discussed a UBI. Um, overall, I, I, I've done some work on UBI. I did some with a, an economist called Howard Reed in about 2013. We explored it um, because the issue was there. Um, frankly, UBI requires a tax system which is so out of kilter with the rest of the world that it's really not plausible to actually produce a proper UBI, which is an alternative to a job guarantee. So I frankly don't really believe UBI is a practical on the table agenda item, whereas I think a job guarantee is, particularly with the Green New Deal. What I do think is important is universal basic services. And that overlaps with, therefore, another question is, yeah, who should be supplying um, the electricity, the water, the gas, uh, but also you know, the broadband, the housing, etc. These are fundamentally state monopolies. Um, and there is a demand for social housing, which cannot be met by private landlords on a whim, who are there for the speculative opportunity that it might be providing to them. Um, I think there is a fundamental role for the state in meeting universal basic services, the things that we rely on, not just healthcare, not just education, but actually that there will be water, there will be sewage that works. And um, you know, I know Scotland's water system is fundamentally different from the rest of the UK, it's not privatised. Well, except it is, by the way. There are 18 private water suppliers in Scotland, but they only supply business. But why? Why is that there? You know, there are many questions which we have to ask. There isn't as yet an effective Scottish energy company, which there should be. All of these things need to be resolved um, because they are sort of another of those guarantees. Why do we have this stupidity of private tariffs where we have to swap from one supplier to another supplier every six months to stop being screwed by a supposed market, which is actually literally upside for the capitalist and downside for the state because they're always being bought out. Uh, this is just unbelievably stupid. So I, I'm really a universal basic services and a, and a job guarantee mix is how I would look at it. Plus, of course, we do need a social safety net. Let's not pretend otherwise. Again, go back to beverage. That was one of the fundamental things that we needed. When people do, through no fault of their own, need support, then we must be there to provide it. And I know um, um, your um, friend Mark Blythe, he had, an, he had another idea to kind of balance the, the UBI and the job guarantee scheme, which was a kind of corporate tax that, you know, we were taxing these huge companies, this idea of the kind of commons um, of wealth as a UBI. And I, th I think that's quite interesting. But my final point on this one is, uh, in this discussion, I never really often hear people talk about what money's for. And when I'm looking at a new Scotland, I'm thinking, you know, if your water's really cheap or free, if your transport's cheap or free, if your education's cheap or free, if your health, you actually, the amount, of the, the amount that you need to kind of survive, it re reduces. And I think there's definitely some ideas around the um, de demand side as well as the supply side when it comes to, comes to finance. Can I just go back to that thing about what Mark Blythe said there? Because, you know, as I said, we have a friend in common. We actually, obviously, clearly in broadly the same political space, although we don't always agree on things. What Mark was talking about, I think, um, and I certainly know he's discussed this, um, is the idea that we need to tax rents. And that extends that idea you've just put forward a long way. Rents are not just the rent we pay on property. 
which is of course also implicit in the price that we pay to buy our properties if we're with a mortgage and claiming that we're buying our own house you, know, you actually can't own a piece of land it's there it isn't yours you just have the right to occupy it that's what you're buying it's still a form of rent on that land we need to think very hard about how we tax these rents but the rents are more than that um, they're the monopoly suppliers. That's why we cannot have um, companies exploiting our position when they're a monopoly supplier. Thankfully, the trains in Scotland are now back in state control again. We do not want the risk that Scottish water should be exploited by anybody, including inside the corporate sector. We do want there to be this basic system of control. The less we pay for rents, including from tech companies, because tech companies take us for an absolute ride, um, you know, the cost of supplying you with a copy of Microsoft Office is about 2p, 3p. Um, you pay maybe 100 quid. That's a rent, the difference in, in economic terms. They're taking money which it doesn't cost them anything to produce. So we need to look at how we tax these people who are extracting these super normal returns, not related to the cost of producing the income that they generate, and say, how do we actually collect money from them to? push the price down in part um, and that's important we need to actually have regulation to keep prices under control in these sectors effective regulation which we haven't got through uk regulators but we need to have in scottish regulators so i'd have a strong regulatory economy uh, margaret thatcher created the idea of regulated capitalism by the way so there's nothing particularly right left wing about saying that um, and then what i'd also be doing is saying yes we do need to tax but in this case it's another form of redistribution there's nothing wrong in taxing to redistribute and that will be therefore why I'd be looking at taxing these particular activities, because they're extracting money from those who haven't got it, paying it to those who have, who haven't earned it. And I personally am offended by that idea. So I will be talking about redistribution. And if you want to call me left wing for that, call me left wing. I'm happy. <laughs> we, 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 we've got um, um, we've got a really good question here from um, Martin. And I think um, if I could be so bold, Martin, you're probably talking for approximately 50% of the population of Scotland when you ask this question. Um, and we've got, um, I had a chat with a few colleagues in work and they're undecided on independence as they are looking for some kind of comprehensive, comprehensive hypothetical model of the Scottish state, economy, pensions, paying for services. And I think Richard has just kind of said that the Scottish model for it to work is almost completely different from what we're inheriting from the from, from Westminster and the United Kingdom at the moment. Um, but really the question is, they're not sure on how Scotland would pay for itself. And as I said, this is a common, common question. Richard, would you like to give us a little short answer on how, Scot that, how would Scotland um, pay for itself at that basic level? Martin, it pays for itself because you are valuable. Um, and I'm not being facetious when I say that. So is everybody else who's listening. So is everybody in Scotland listening. I mean, don't undersell Scotland. I often, my wife will tell you this, I go all over the place, we arrive somewhere and I say, what makes this economy work? It might be a city, it might be a small village, it can be a country. What makes it work? What makes the vast majority of any country work? is people doing things for each other in their own locality. They teach each other, they care for each other, they clean for each other, they shop for each other, they provide the shop for each other, and so on. They generate the power for each other. 80 to 90% of an economy is about literally meeting local need. And that is where most of the value in any country arises. That's why I say, Martin, you are the basis of the value of Scotland. 
uh, in yourself. Um, you will make what is a viable Scotland. So the only question is, what have we got to sell from Scotland? And will what we've got to sell from Scotland be more than what we've got to buy into Scotland? Um, first of all, we don't need to buy in some of the things that are already bought in by Scotland already. This is you know, part of the JERS debate. Um, you know, government expenditure. Don't go Scotland there, Richard. Debate. Don't go there. Don't go there. All right, don't, go, don't, go, don't, go, don't go to JERS. Don't go to JERS. I'll just talk about we don't need to buy as much, you know, defense mechanism we don't need to buy as much foreign policy navy we might need to do a bit more aid and some countries have made a very powerful role for themselves norway for example as a as a country that builds its foreign policy on the basis of aid not defense so that may be a great way to spend money but overall um scotland has a very strong export driven economy if it was to be orientated that way and as i said it's not just whiskey obviously that's valuable um, Scotland could actually have a strong agriculture, and I think that's underestimated how important agriculture could be in Scotland if it's built on a sustainable basis, because I think there is quite a strong opportunity in Scotland for some agricultural products. Obviously, you know, it's particularly in an era when we're actually talking about people moving away from meat, I think Scotland could still do good stuff. But energy, energy, energy is going to be what Scotland is going to sell, and Scotland has to invest to sell energy. That is how it will create a balance of payments which is deliverable for the future. It is wind, which Scotland has plenty of. It is hydro, probably exploited to a reasonable degree now, but water can be sold in its own right, and tide. And tide is something that Scotland has more than anywhere else in Europe. Scotland could be the Saudi Arabia of Europe for renewable energy. Boy, actually, really, if you were looking at economic opportunities, Scotland's got more than almost any other country in Europe right now. Well, well, I, I would say, Can I Martin, just say something? Yep, please, please go on, Karen. Sorry, I was just, just going to say, regards to Martin's question as well, it's clear from your friend's question as well that people still regard money as being a commodity and imagine that it's still tied to yeah. a, a valuable metal. I think that still lies at the heart of people's misunderstanding about the economy when they say, how are we going to pay for that? And that money, when you understand the nature of it, that it really is a promise to pay, um, then that frees up your mind to understand that really, yeah, exactly what Richard says, we are all the real resources. Um, we are, we make things happen for each other. But, but what's quite <laughs> funny, Martin said, you know? no, 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 that's not what I meant. Can, can, can I also be clear, that's where money gets its value from as well. I mean, you really have to understand this. I'm not being a Marxist when I say that actually um, money gets its value from human labour. Um, that's what every single classical economist said from um, the Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, a great Scot, of course, David Ricardo, who happened to be a Scot, um, and, and thereon, um, down to Marx. Uh, it was always that actually we understood that the value in anything was the labour content within it. And there was a lot of people, John Stuart Mill, a great libertarian, who argued that actually we had to control the exploitation of everything else to make sure labour got its fair return. So as an economic historian, I'd say that's what something we've forgotten. Instead, we've gone into this speculative mode. Scotland isn't going to be speculating. Scotland is going to be about the driving of value. And value is people and the exports it can make and the exports it makes are going to be driven from the natural resources that Scotland's got, which are renewable. I, I, I genuinely do not share your concern, Martin. I think that 
I mean, frankly, I'd rather be in Scotland looking at the future than in England looking at the future. I, I'll, I'll just clarify because Martin can't answer, but he, he just said, no, no, that's not what I meant. So that was my fault that I've taken. But a wonderful discussion, and we know that question. He was asking more about the model. And, and what I would say, um, Martin, is that it'd be very easy for someone to come up with a model that shows how the Scottish economy would work. But that model would be built, built on certain assumptions. And it'd be very easy for another organisation to come up with different uh, uh, assumptions that lead to a different model so we don't know a, a, an independent Scotland would have to be would, would be to an extent a jump into the dark because it's a brand new country and, and you, you could do the modelling you could do all the modelling that you wanted but to this idea that we can come up with a figure that says this will definitely happen that, that Scotland will definitely look like this, this economy will do that it's just not going to happen but there can be models built that do that but they'll show different things so I think we have to concentrate on the principles of independence and what we're able to do with independence and of course get all your mates all your work colleagues to watch Scotonomics um, and you'll be, yeah, you'll, you'll be happy there. I mean, building those models isn't a waste of time because you, then you think about the possibilities none of those possibilities will work out as you expect that's why you build the model it increases the resilience of your thinking when you actually face the reality remember Scotland won't become independent the day it votes to become independent there will be a period of transition I think that's why people like a common wheel have done some good work talking about what that transition period is I think their work needs to be developed taken further I don't think they would argue with that I think there are other people who can obviously do that work but we do need that and really for the next independence referendum campaign whatever it might be there does need to be that vision and hopefully more than one of those visions i really do mean you know we're gonna have at least three independence parties campaigning together probably at that point for independence they need to actually present different but complementary visions of what a scotland could be afterwards because remember an independent scotland needs a thriving democracy not a single party state as well and, and of course we ha if you mention tax then i'm going to mention the sustainable growth um, commission um, and and it's it's not that that's that's a that's a, a vision for Scotland. Maybe it's a couple of years out of date now, but that's certainly something yeah. I would recommend that people have a look at and really see if that's the type of Scotland that they want. Karen, do you want to ask the last question? I just wanted to say that you know, really, I can't emphasise this enough that when your country has its own currency, you can really utilise all your real resources. So you know, it's estimated that. You know, the USA has something like uh, 3 million people unemployed at any given time. 3 million people unemployed. This is costing them something like a billion dollars a day. Uh, you know, that you can see, you know, on a very practical, realistic level that when people are not working, that that is actually, you know, not, not a successful economy. And, you know, an example that I would give you is, when I graduated from university, a lot of people that I studied with wanted to go further and be doctors. They wanted to do a second degree and there, there weren't enough places. Um, we had literally, we had real resources sitting there ready mm -hmm. to become even more valuable resources and the money wasn't there. Remember that money is not valuable. Look at a note. And although you think, yeah, it's valuable because I can swap it for something, it's only valuable because of that other thing you can swap it for. The money in your bank account is utterly meaningless. All it is, is a number on a ledger. There's nothing behind that. There's no cash, there's no gold, there's nothing. It's just a number printed on a ledger. The value is in the fact that Scotland works. 
Scotland delivers. Scotland makes and it will make. That's what Scotland can do. If you believe you're of worth, then Scotland's of worth. It's as simple as that. Great. Well, do you know what? I was, I was going to try and finish um, for nine o'clock UK, but we've still got lots of engagement. So, Richard, if, are, you able, are you able to stay for another five, ten minutes? Because we, yeah, we haven't touched on COP yet. So let's, let's move back. Um, COP's taking place in Glasgow at the moment. What's your thoughts on what's happened so far, Richard? Uh, well, first of all, I'm sure a great many people have got COVID and that worries me like crazy for the people of Glasgow as, as well after this event. Um, moving on from that, what has happened? Um, we've seen a buffoon um, of a prime minister from the UK who's made a fool of himself, which provides yet another reason for Scotland to try to walk away. We have seen a useful commitment on uh, forestation or deforestation. So I'd welcome that. There are rumours that there are going to be some commitments about net zero, but overall what we're seeing is very hard to raise money to help developing countries and they need it. But let's put this in context. I did a tweet the other day. The world needs $100 billion a year to fund the Green New Deal, the environmental change we require in developing countries. In the UK as a whole, we spend 60 billion subsidizing the savings of the already wealthy in the UK at present, basically tax subsidies to pensions and to ISIS and so on. That's worth well over $70 billion. In other words, three quarters of the money that is required to fund climate change around the world is being spent in the UK alone, subsidizing the existing savings of the wealthy, most of which is going into fossil fuel driven activity. So the money's available. We're just being stupid. I have not seen that fundamental breakthrough of belief that actually we're all in this together. I'm still seeing far too many silos. I'm hearing great speeches from some of the smaller countries. There's a wonderful speech from the Prime Minister of Barbados today. Um, we had a fantastic speech from David Attenborough. Um, but we are not seeing the large countries coming up and standing up and owning up to the fact that they have the responsibility. So is COP26 going to be a success? I hate to say it, I doubt it. And yet it would be so easy to make it one. Great. And any mentions of the Green New Deal from, from anyone within COP? I've not heard it said as Green New Deal as such, but I'm not worried whether the name is used. What I'm worried about is whether the policies are delivered. The Green New, at this level, you know, we're talking macro policies about climate targets. Again, slightly worrying um, that we spend all our time obsessing about measuring carbon to meet a percentage target. What we're actually really trying to do is eliminate carbon. We don't need to measure it, except to the extent we want to get rid of it. Uh, I'm not concerned about um, the companies that are pumping out carbon. I'm actually concerned about how companies are going to stop pumping out carbon. So I feel that we're still at a very early age, a stage of debate here where people haven't really got their heads around the fact that it isn't just about, well, carrying on as normal, but with a bit less carbon, but actually fundamentally changing um, the way we live. And I hate to say it, but we are going to have to change the way we live to some degree. We are not going to consume as much, but we are going to care for each other a lot more. We are going to have a better education. We are going to have a cheaper cost of living. We are going to fuel our houses in a different way. We're going to travel more on public transport and we're probably not going to go so much long haul on holiday as we have done. But we are sure as hell going to have a much better entertainment world. We're going to have much more fun. I mean, how much is it, you know, carbon does it produce to have a guy pick up um, 
guy is a generic term here, um, pick up a um, guitar in the corner of the pub and start singing, you know, um, that is the sorts of things that we might well remind ourselves that actually is what is valuable in life. And I feel that we have failed as yet to embrace the idea that this change is about emphasizing what is really valuable rather than consumerism, frankly, most of which we don't want. You know, I would love it if this phone would last me for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. there, there, there's, there, there's a paradigm shift that we need. And, and when we're looking at kind of, you know, the things that make a difference, net zero is just this kind of small thing you've changed how much carbon is it it's a little bit less it's a little bit more but it's so unlikely to make the fundamental changes that we need we need to change the rules of the game and reshaping the financial um, structure around uh, the global economy uh, or we need to completely change the paradigm and as you said richard look at the things that living without fear and living a completely different life and um, the question i want to ask you is about degrowth and growth because we've got a really good question about a just transition and I think that fits in really nicely. How how do we move to a just transition and how do we do that without an exceptional amount of uh, of, of growth um, in, in the economy? Well, growth is a curse. Um, we cannot have a finite planet on which we presume we can have infinite growth. And there's one industry which absolutely tries to pretend otherwise and it's the industry which I would start by tackling. Uh, and that's advertising. Um, there is no other profession where people go to work in the morning with the sole intention of making people unhappy. But that's what an advertising executive does. They want to make us feel as though we're inadequate because oh, this is an iPhone 10 or something and it's not the latest version. It was the one I bought you know, a while ago, which I, as I say, would hope to last forever. But they want me to feel inadequate because I haven't got an iPhone 13. I know the number. Um, and I should therefore be getting rid of that, even though it's completely functional. So we have to stop this idea that consumption is the driver. We have to stop the idea that we can only have public services if we all buy iPhones to therefore pay taxes on them, because that's not true. Again, this freedom when we understand that we generate money, A, from the government creating it, and B, actually, the taxes paid by people who are working in the NHS are just as good as the taxes paid by people who are not working or working in the private sector. You know, we have to understand they're all the same. Um, there's no problem with them. That's still value because it's human labor for human benefit. We need to understand that. But then we have to understand what it is that we really want. And we have this massively distorted economy. I wrote about this heavily in a book I wrote a few years ago, and I'll stand by it. Um, it's not my easiest read, but it's called The Courageous State. I think you can pick it up pretty cheaply now. There's a lot of stuff in there about the curse of advertising. We need to stop the subsidy to advertising. We should remove the tax relief on advertising spending. We shouldn't allow businesses to recover the VAT that they pay on buying advertising. We should instead, with the money recovered, be subsidizing local media to actually provide genuine news free from political bias. Um, we should be talking about a different world and how we actually if we stop consuming so much, what do we do with the time that we have actually freed up as a result? Because we're not literally running on the treadmill to buy stuff we don't need. How could we look after each other, entertain each other, enjoy each other more than we do now? Because that to me is what growth is all about. It's about the growth of us as human beings, not the growth of us as consumers. 
Um, I don't know how to stop buying books, but everything else in life, I've really tried to cut down on. <laughs> I'm, I'm the same with albums. I'm the same with albums. What about you, Kieran? Is there anything yeah. you can't stop buying? But on that wider point about how do we move away from a kind of materialistic uh, world before we come back to this kind of more uh, practical way of, of a just transition, which I want to cover before we finish. Uh, for me, what what do I like to buy? Yeah, I like I like books, but I'm I'm getting them on my my um, <laughs> uh, tablet now as opposed to physical ones. <laughs> uh, so so when we're looking at this just transition again, the question there. Um, how do we do it? One thing I would say, Richard, is we definitely don't do what Thatcher did in the eighties and leave it to the market. Um, because no. that, that 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 is we we you probably I'm sure you'll remember, but Thatcher spoke about a just transition and the idea for to moving to new modern industries and leaving all those old industries behind. But it was just completely left to the market to do that. And I think if we want a just transition away from fossil fuels and towards it, not just renewables but less carbon intensive jobs, which I think is a huge thing that we should be looking mm. for, we've got to have state intervention and and not leave it to the market. What's your your thoughts on that, Richard? Well, I think we're going to have a bigger state. I mean, I don't think there's a problem with that. I, mean, I think Scotland would definitely have a bigger state. Remember, Scotland already has a bigger state than the rest of the UK at the moment. It's not that Scotland is heavily subsidised. Scotland just has a bigger state. More things are supplied by the state inside Scotland than they are elsewhere. And that's partly because a lot of the stuff that's consumed in the southeast of England is complete rubbish, which we don't need. And it's actually corporate profits and all sorts of things, which are supposedly, you know, measures of income, but actually don't add any real value to people's lives. So we will have a bigger role for the government. I've already mentioned things, you know, this universal basic services. We need that. Um, we need to make sure that these things are supplied at an affordable price that everybody has access to them. You know, the idea that a phone, would, a mobile phone was an essential um, in 1992 when I got my first one would have been you know, ridiculous. Um, I was considered to be extravagant when I bought one. I was the only person in my firm who could have one. I was the senior partner and we could afford one phone and I was allowed to use it most of the time. <laughs> I was out more than most people, but we had to share it. Now, you know, as a business asset. And now, you know, we can't live without a phone. So, but that is a universal basic service. We've got to make sure it's available um, and not unaffordable for people because we can't literally access that now. Now, those sorts of things are critical. But at the same time, and, and the state has a role in making sure of that. I've mentioned already this idea of regulatory capitalism. Because if we don't regulate capitalism, I'm not saying we shouldn't have a private sector. I think there's plenty of merit to people being allowed to go and run their own businesses. I'm all in favour of the idea that small business is a fundamental part of the economy in particular. But big business is very good at exploitation. It's very bad at innovation. It's very good at maintaining the status quo, which we don't need. And it's very good at exploitation. So we have to make sure that doesn't happen to ensure that we go through this just transition and that we move to a world where actually we do consume less but we live more. And I think that's the absolute point that I want to make. I don't believe in degrowth. I actually think what we call less consumerism is more living. And I call that growth. And I think what we're doing now is being strangled by the debt that, dry, that is the driver of this supposed growth, which is not bringing most people a great yeah. deal of happiness, as I see it. 
No, that's that that that's a really interesting perspective. I think when we're looking at a just transition, we, we have to look way past the shores of Scotland, and we have to think about how the world is transitioning. And sure. and, and you know, I think Scotland's very fortunate, but you know that it has wind and it has the rain. But it's not our wind. It's not our water. It's the water that just happens to land on Scotland. And I think that if we look at Scotland as being a resource-rich country, we've got to think. Well, we're we're just fortunate. We're just the people who. We're where it lands, how do we pay this back to the rest of the planet? And that's where I think the gross transition and the just transition happens. And I do think that there's still a lot of people in Scotland who are seeing water and seeing our resources and thinking, wow, we can make an absolute fortune out of this. And I think we've got to be much more holistic approach and think about actually how do we make sure that everyone on the planet survives and what's our role in it? Well, remember I mentioned already the fact that Scotland should have a foreign policy based upon aid help to others. And Scotland could play a big role in the world in that way as well. This is not a small country in that sense. It's perfectly capable of standing up on the world stage and being a leader there as well. If it does, for example, like Norway does, actually really heavily intervene and have very clear policies for help. Um, there's a, an amazing organization in Norway called NORAD, Nor Norwegian Aid and Development, who has done a phenomenal amount of good work. Um, they don't have a significant army, navy, air force, whatever in Norway. They don't want one, nor would Scotland, I hope. But they do use the money that they save to actually really impact upon the way in which the world is transitioning, quite literally. They do a lot of work around that. Great. Um, Karen, any final thoughts before I let both of you go to read all the books that you've got to catch up on? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree with Richard, I mean, you know, we have a thriving life sciences sector in um, Scotland, you know, and that could be part of that. Um, so, yeah, more on that later. That's coming up in the next conference. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. Well, we've, we've kept you long enough. Thanks so much, everyone, for, for so much engagement. Um, we've been on this for an hour and a quarter. It's quarter past ten where I am in Barcelona, so... You can all stay. What's that line that the bouncers say? <laughs> you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Um, you're such Thank a you. friend of the Scotonomics show. It's great to have you. Great to have your insight. And um, I think on behalf of everyone who's watching, we do hope that uh, you know the Scottish government listen to some of the amazing things that you say uh, because we'll be in a, a much better state as an independent country if we do. Thanks so much, Richard. Karen, thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you.